Hello, freaks. Welcome to Radical Research, episode 27. Tonight is a special night. It's not a special night because it's a diversion from our usual format. It's special because we're going to talk about an album that is near and dear to the hearts of your Radical Research host. We're going to be talking about Spiral Architects' one and only album, A Skeptic's Universe. However, before we do that, we would like to mourn the loss of another artist that we hold near and dear to our hearts, uh, Mark Hollis, uh, formerly of Talk Talk and also of Solo Fame. My story of Talk Talk began in the early 2000s when I first heard Spirit of Eden because I heard it was one of the most quiet rock albums ever made. I didn't expect much more than that, but I got much, much more than that. It's a record that, along with their 1991 album, Laughingstock, are among my favorite records, um, truly visionary records, albums whose influences continue to ripple out. You can hear them all across um, the full spectrum of experimental rock, post-rock, and music that is more difficult to categorize. At any rate, it's a, it's a terrible loss all too early. Uh, 64 years, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, it was 64, 66, something like that. Yeah, um, I'm not sure what the cause was, but it was, yeah, pretty sad. And I'm I'm fairly new to Talk Talk uh, in a sense, yet I knew of them when I was 10 years old because the song Talk Talk from their first album, The Party Is Over, was all over MTV. And like Split Ends is I've Got You, that was a song I, I remember really liking, but Pretty soon, Iron Maiden and Judas Priest just steamrolled over all of that, and then um, then I didn't really explore further. You know, like D- Duran Duran's Rio was one of the few full lengths I think I bought at that time before the before the metal oppressed my my listen the rest of my listening. <laughs> but you know, in exploring that era much later in life, um, and then of course you know having a friendship with you, and uh, I know how big you were on those last two albums. I started checking out Talk Talk. All five records really kind of, I, I think I bought those within a couple years. And um, I was astounded at the progression and the evolution that ended up with, you know, Spirit of Eden and then eventually the final Laughing Stock. Amazing records, an amazing artist. He he was a presence and he had he had a lot of really great thoughts about music in general. He was, he famously said something, and I'm going to paraphrase this because I don't have it in front of me, but something about, you know, you should never listen to music as background. Um, just kind of keeping music sacred, keeping it special, and keeping it at the forefront of our lives. And I, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I mean, we spend every other Wednesday night for a couple hours talking about music. So obviously, we were of the, of the same mind. All, all due respect to Mark Hollis and uh, a great loss. And um, yeah, thanks, Hunter, for turning me on to some of their later stuff. I don't know if I would have gotten as interested in them uh, had I not known that they had evolved yeah, so in, in such a way. Although I have to say, you know, It's My Life and The Party's Over uh, and The Color of Spring, all great albums. I mean, they're all, all five of their albums are mandatory. Buy them. I would also recommend that if you do take a fancy to especially um, Laughingstock, that you check out his um, his solo record, too. It's the eponymously titled Mark Hollis, a, a spare and, and beautiful, heartbreaking record. Probably resonates a little deeper this week. Yes. So, Hunter, Spiral Architect, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, one-and-done phenomenon. Do you know exactly what year they formed? I believe that they formed in 1995. Um, it may have been 94, um, because I think they cut their first demo in 95. They did. Um, Metal Archives lists their formation as 
none other than 1993. Oh, well, there you go. Now, isn't that... Inc- they destined to great things. Isn't that kind of incredible, con- yes. considering what they mean in the progressive tech metal world? Sure. Uh, but yeah, as you, as you said, the demo uh, came out in 1995. Just had two songs on it, uh, Fountainhead, and uh, which made the album eventually, and then a song that didn't make the album called Purpose. It's a great it, song. Yeah. No, that's a great demo. Obviously promised some, some great things to come. That was the band in their core formation, basically. Uh, guitarists Steinar and Kai, uh, Lars Norberg on bass, and Oskar Mikkelsen on drums. The vocalist was a session guy by the name of uh, Life K. Nashog. Nasog. Boy, I'm butchering that, I'm sure. He ended up kind of coming back into the Spiral Architect story in a tangential way 10 years later because he was the singer in Twisted Into Form, which features Spiral Architect guitarist Kai. Yes. Whenever I listen to that demo, I can't help but think about Twisted Into Form because he has such a singular voice. Sure. It's a very unique voice. Yeah, sure. And they, they... they weren't a Spiral Architect copy by any means, but they also weren't a million miles away. They were certainly, you know, twisted into form, inhabited the tech metal world as well. So yes. um, also a great album, but that's uh, that's another discussion for another time. The band went on to uh, recruit singer Oyvind Hegeland from a band called Manitou, whose 1995 album Entrance was, for me, for me uh, when, I, when I think about Entrance, the thing I primarily think is Fate's Warning. Well, sure. Well, but I mean, for all intents and purposes, it is like an Alder. It's like a tribute to Alder era Fate's Warning. Early Alder, too. You know. Yeah, and I, I don't mean that disparagingly. No. I just mean that like you can't really separate the two. Right. I, I, I really like that album, though. Oh, I'm, I, no, I like it a lot. I mean, of course, I'm a big fan of Oyvind's voice. I know you are. We don't have a lot to hang on to with his voice because he hasn't been on a ton of stuff. So I like that So Fate's Warning drenched. Well, I mean, there aren't a ton of, uh, you know, of really convincing Fate's Warning, I don't want to say tribute, but, you know, bands that are that conspicuously inspired by Fate's Warning. No, true enough. True and, I, enough. and I think it's true cool, enough. too, that both those bands were featured on a compilation called A Gathering of Eight Norwegian Prog Metal Bands. Was, um, was that the title of it? Yeah. Okay. It's, yeah. yeah. It's called a, yeah, a Gathering. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> you made it sound like the title was Eight Norwegian Metal Band. I'm like, that's a pretty uh, literal title. I like that. And also has a, um, another band that you and I like quite a bit, uh, Minas Tirith. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's a cool band. Yeah, so here we are back in Norway uh, in a bit of a different guise. Imagine than, that. Th- yeah, imagine that. But in a bit of a different guise than normal. You know, the, the Spiral Architect, of course, are from a different world. We'll start outlining that as we go. But in June 1998, this solidified lineup of Spiral Architect went into Village Production Studio in Tornillo, Texas. Under the watch, it, it must be said, we got to ma- mention this guy. I mention him a lot, Neil Kernan. He served as producer, recorder, and mixer of... The album that came to be called A Skeptic's Universe. Man, you got you know, when you talk about Neil, the first thing I have to talk about, if I'm not talking about Spiral, I'm thinking about Queensryche's Rage for Order. Right. And the incredible oh, yeah, production sure. piece that is. Well, and I mean, really like the futuristic production piece that it is. Yeah. You yeah. know, I don't, nothing had really been done in metal like that up nope. to that point. Nope. Yeah, and it still sounds contemporary. You could put it on for somebody that's kind of new to it, and they might not be able to guess exactly the era it was from. Yeah, um, and I mean, Neil Neil's a big metal fan, but the fact is, like, Neil comes 
firmly from without the metal scene. Yeah. Um, and he brought, you know, all that perspective that he got, you know, producing fusion and, and Prague and sort of brought it to bear on, uh, well, on a number of productions, but especially on a skeptics universe. And I think the, um, <laughs> you know, the preference in the mix for Lars Norberg says a lot about that. <laughs> right. You know, right. I mean, it's a very, it's an unconventional uh, metal production. Sure. And we'll, we'll hear that and we'll talk about it some more. And, and Kernan, for those who don't know a lot of his resume, you know, I, I'd throw out things like Dawkins' third and fourth album as benchmarks of stuff that he did. Never, uh, he did some Nevermore stuff. Mm-hmm. He did some Nile stuff. Yeah, oh, yeah, he was, yeah, like, yeah, he was crucial in the early Nevermore phase. Yeah, and some Nile albums. And what, what, what else comes to mind for you with, with Kernan? Um, I mean, Macabre. Didn't he do Macabre? He did Macabre. He did like, um, Oh God! He started making strange choices. I remember, like, I think he hey, made a hold, hold, hold record. A and by that time, you were like, "Wow, what ch- what kind of choices is he going to make next?" You know? Yeah, no, he got like really in. Uh, he kind of um, carved out like a space for himself in in the metal world. And, and you know, he worked with um, Akrakaki. Oh wow! Um, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Right. And and Nile and Macabre, as you said, um, did uh, worked with Agora. Uh, oh, it, I, I can't believe I forgot this. Like, he was like working with Cannibal Corpse and Deicide. Hmm. Hmm. Um, he did that. Um, the Wretched Spawn record. Interesting. Interesting. Interesting for a guy who you know really cut his teeth on you know at least in the in the nineties or eighties and nineties on kind of more progressive stuff. Well, yeah, too. I mean, like he did. I mean, he, he did Unleashed in the East. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Was he, he wasn't producer. He must have been like some kind of. Probably a mixer. Yeah. Yeah. Something mixer, like that. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, worked with, worked with Brand X. Okay. You know. So, okay. <laughs> so, so just those two names alone, Priest and Brand X, along with everything else we talked about, clearly Neil Kernan. Skinless. Is, and Skinless. Is, <laughs> Last is, time you'll hear the, the name Skinless here, folks. <laughs> uh, well, especially along with Brand X and Judas Priest, right? <laughs> yeah. There's not any other thing tying those three bands together. Other than they use guitars, I guess. Um, Drums and stuff. Let's get into Skeptics Universe. Strap in. This is going to be quite a ride. Oh, 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 
That's spinning the lead track from A Skeptic's Universe. I mean, did you count the notes there? <laughs> I, can't, I can't count that high. <laughs> but, you, but, but, but here's the thing. I mean, you have to just marvel at the fluidity as that stuff flies by. I remember the first time I heard it, I just laughed hysterically. <laughs> One, because it was so impressive. It was so badass. But as we will probably talk more, it's like it's like the the histrionics are managed so well. Yeah. You know, like yeah. a lot of bands can just shred, but very, very few bands can shred with that amount of purpose. That's the story of a skeptic's universe in a nutshell, yeah. because let's just get right into it. Seizures even from Germany, you know, they, they attempted this sort of thing with their first couple albums. I, I like them simply because there's just not that much of this kind of metal out there at all. So anybody that offers it, for one, they have to be respected. And two, you know, people like you and I who dig this kind of shit, you got to love it in, in a way, right? There, there, I mean, truly, there are so few legit. There's a lot of tech thrash. There's a lot of techno, technical death metal. But there are very, very, very few legitimate, just straight up technical metal records. Right, right. And so that's why I brought up Seizures Even, because when yeah, it comes yeah, by, right. you have to like it. But see, Seizures Even had uh, a number of problems. And Bronze Herida being one of them. Yeah, that voice is, is a tough one to to manage sometimes. I don't think I even own a copy of their second album simply because of him. I it just couldn't take it anymore. But I love Life Cycle for what it is. So um, do I. It's clearly indebted to Watchtower, and I think you can hear a ton of Watchtower, especially Control and Resistance, of course, uh, in Spiral Architect. And I, I mean, I would put, argue that, yeah. that Skeptics Universe is the heir to the Control and Resistance throne. I, I was thinking we were going to get into this in the middle of the show, but here we are after the first <laughs> song. And, and this is a big thing. I, for so long, I put Control and Resistance up there as probably the number one tech metal album of all time. Would never be beaten, can never be bested that sort of attitude. And um, I still love it. Over time, over time, this didn't happen right away with my first few years with Spiral Architect, but over time, I'm happy to put Skeptics Universe on that same pedestal. I'm not going to say I put it higher, but I think as far as how it's managed, how it's written, it definitely is equal to that. The the reason it's almost better in a way for me is how Oivan manages the perilous musical terrain that he's trying to deal with because that's the real challenge of tech metal is okay you can you can play all that you can reel out this expression that's just so crazy and so hyperkinetic and so amazing Um, but how do you get a singer who can manage that and and sing viable melodic lines over that stuff there's almost nowhere to put yourself and oivind had a similar challenge as like a scott jeffries of confessor or an Alan Tecchio of Watchtower, where it's it's just difficult to conceive where you put vocals there. And yet, Oyvind not only did that, but he came up with these viable, memorable, amazing lines that take center stage so often, at least for me. Like, it's, it's an amazing vocal performance. 
and and Look, on top of everything else that's going on. I mean, it's it's just incredible. So that's that's one of the reasons I hold it on I'm, such a high pedestal. Look, I'm going to be the apostate here and say I actually put this album above Control and Resistance, and largely for the reason that you just mentioned. No vocalist in the history of tech metal, like real genuine tech metal, like we said, there there's not a lot of examples. No one's ever been able to navigate that minefield of time signature changes and the flurry of notes like Oivent. Right. Like no one's ever been able to craft like truly hooky vocal melodies over that sort of din. Um, and he, he mastered it. Yeah. And, and you know what's even more amazing than that? Like there's a lot of moments. We heard some of it in spinning. We'll hear some of it on further songs here as we get into it. You know, he'd multi-tracked a lot. He would like harmonize right. with himself or at least uh, maybe one of the other guys did too. But there was like layers of vocals coming at you, right? And right. Just... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's jump into it even further. This is the second song, Excessive. Oh, 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 
couple of things to mention from that clip. One is that other than Buddy Lackey, who I guess we'll talk about later, um, the great vocalist of uh, Psychotic Waltz, yeah. um, certainly a, an influence on Spiral Architect. Yeah. Um, other than Buddy, I don't know many vocalists in metal that get more mileage out of wordless vocals than Oi Man. <laughs> um, and there are a lot of them on this record. I mean, and they're all completely memorable and they're all kind of woven into the, the framework of the music. Um, and two, um, in that clean part, you get like one of the only, I guess you would call grooves on this album. Yeah. And, and like, you only get two bars of it, <laughs> whatever. They got it's bored. Pretty satisfying. Yeah. The, <laughs> like they got, yeah, they got more important stuff to do. They got bored yeah. after two bars. We're like, oh, let's yeah, it's like, oh, screw this. All right, let's just go back. Let's yeah, dive back let's into the deep end. Into something else. Yeah. yeah we're going to dive back into the deep <laughs> Yeah. And I think in that song, more than as much as any other, I should say, you know, we hear the three, what I consider the three major influences of this band, Watchtower, Fate's Warning, and Psychotic Waltz. I always say Fate's Warning because it, to me, Oyvind delivered something that was this kind of perfect amalgam between John Arch with the histrionics and that kind of uh, getting a lot of mileage out of wordless phrasing. Because, you know, Arch would do oh, yeah, that. Oh, yeah, of course. Arch yeah. did that a lot. Uh, and then some early Ray Alder stuff, too. So I, I hear Fate's Warning. And I mean, yeah, you definitely hear the um, the influence of Perfect Symmetry, um, both in the the music and the yeah. Perfect Symmetry is the the main musical influence in terms of Fate's Warning. But I think we hear at the end of Excessive there that clip we listened to. There's a lot of cynic focus there. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh, you in the clean guitars? Yeah. Absolutely. But if you remember in the the promotional ad that Sensory ran, Cynic was one. Of, you know, do you remember like? It had all the band names, and it was like Thinking's Man, Thinking Man's Metal. Yeah, like Cynic was one of the bands that was mentioned. Uh, it should be. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, obviously these guys probably worship focus. Right, right. If anybody's wondering about the band name Spiral Architect, obviously that's the final song on the great, great, great Sabbath Bloody Sabbath album by Black Sabbath. The name was never supposed to be a direct reference to Black Sabbath, but Lars Norberg, the bassist, has been quoted as saying that Sabbath is probably his favorite band, but just that the fact that the name is not really a tribute to them. And obviously this band sounds really nothing like Sabbath (laughs) (laughs) in any of their eras. (laughs) Um, I also think it's interesting that this album came out at the dawn of the new millennium. Now, I remember back in 1999 that new millennium crap was just you couldn't get away from it it was silly back then it's silly now it's just a number really but there was all that hype early 2000 is when it was released on sensory records ken golden's label there's something really significant about that for some reason i think because it because it takes the tech metal from control and resistance in 89 cynics focus in 93 of course the the fate's warning stuff from you know the late 80s early 90s puts it into a whole new context here and here we are in the 2000s and we're in Norway. I just think it kind of all makes a whole lot of sense in my strange so, world. So. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, yeah, Watchtower releasing, you know, sort of their watershed record at the, you know, at, in the twilight of the 80s. There you go. And Spiral Architect releasing this at the in the dawn of the new millennium. Right, new right. tech metal for a new world. <laughs> your tech, your life. <laughs> Ken Golden should have hired me as, the, as his ad guy. I, I really could have uh, helped him a lot, but uh, oh well. You're but, lost, Ken. Yeah, no, kudos to Ken for, for signing this thing because 
Uh, for one, I think he had some good success with it. This became a cult favorite album. Uh, people still talk about it today. I mean, not just us, but um, there are others out there that worship this thing just as much today as they did in 2000. Uh, but I think it was also frustrating, and I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but I'm sure Ken was pretty frustrated when the band couldn't come up with a second album because right. it was never really announced that they had broken up, but they just kind of fizzled. And they went on to other things, and we, we'll talk about those things later, but just never followed up. And in true technical tradition. They not any shows either. It's too bad, but in a way, they don't sully their reputation at all. Right. Here we are. One perfect record. I flash right. I could feel Sound fell from the morning stars The closing all too soon All too soon
Frippy. Very frippy and trippy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, so Occam's Razors and Interlude in the record. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it kind of traces like this whole tradition um, from, you know, King Crimson through kind of like that mystical, you know, David Sylvian rock. Obviously, like, very cynic too, because cynic's tied into sort of a, you know, an esoteric tradition in rock and fusion and metal. Uh, and then, you know, particularly apropos of this, Sean Malone, um, Cynic's bassist and Chapman Stick player, is featured rather rather prominently in um, Occam's Razor. And then moving back from that with um, the first little piece that we heard there from Moving Spirit, you know, I don't think of Oivind as a particularly aggressive vocalist most of the time, but I really, really, and, and you know, the impact of that is sort of elevated because he uses that register of his voice pretty infrequently yeah but he's like really really going for it in that song yeah and two like the other thing that i think is special about that song is it has some rather producerly tactics about it like the production on a skeptic's universe like no matter how you know quirky it is with the the levels of the instruments like it's a fairly representative production like it's its main goal to me seems to be like verisimilitude like the you know uh you know showing this band as it is but there's not a lot of sleight of hand in the production but you can hear like some of the effects in that song you know the tremolo effect and like kind of the way that Neil weaves the vocals and the guitars around each other. It's got a pretty magical kind of effect about it. I uh, totally agree. And in fact, I feel like this album succeeds again on that high pedestal level of tech metal, the highest, the absolute highest, partly because of the production. Because, you know, this is this is a real good headphones record. It, it does get cosmic. It does get dense. It does get sort of psychedelic in, in, the, in the sense of just a lot of colors, you know, and a, and a right. lot of it, and a lot of it's of course, all the notes flying at you and the performances. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that's like, can be attributed to the band itself. Absolutely. 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 But it's a produced record. You know, it's not simply mm-hmm. Kernan hitting record and just sitting back. Like no, there's a lot no, of no, thought no. put into the post-production and the mixing. Um, and I think, and I think that's really a lot, where a lot of magic lives and happens with a record. And he was able to get this happening with this record. Whereas, Watchtower's Control and Resistance was a little drier and a little more panicked, probably recorded quicker, I'm, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And, you know, it's, again, not taking anything away from that record, but it's just not as well produced. No, it's not. And I don't even, uh, you know, and I, and I think what you mean, like, it doesn't have anything to do with um, the inferiority of technology in 1989 or the sound quality. But the production itself, like the thought that went in to capturing this record onto tape. Exactly. It's not as thorough of a production job. Right. Yeah, you it, can tell I almost feel like there was probably and I don't I don't know this, I guess we could ask Ken, but like I feel like there was probably a fair amount of pre production work that went into this. Yeah. Like strategizing. Yeah. Like how do we capture this mania? Right. And they and he, he as in Kernan, did a, did a fantastic job because I, I'd imagine it's very, very difficult to record something <laughs> like this where you've got five guys just firing on all cylinders all the time. And um, it, it's all wheels within wheels in a way because to me that goes back to the strength of the song. You know, the songs are really, really good. Um, so that helps. And I think the ear goes to the song first once you 
get over the flurry uh, that's coming at you. But yeah. Yeah, the song, the song itself is what stays with you. True that. And now a word from our sponsor. Lamentations of the Flame Princess is the brutal, wondrous, award-winning tabletop role-playing game out of Finland. Fantasy, horror, and doom. Because this episode is all about one of the best bands who released one of the best albums ever, Lamentations is going to give listeners an exclusive offer. If you buy a print copy of the LOTFP Rules and Magic book from the LOTFP web store, you will get a print copy of their wildest, weirdest adventure, The Monolith from Beyond Time and Space, free with your order. 48 pages of time-breaking madness. It's getting down to the last copies of the adventure, so jump on board now. The LOTFP web store is at www.lotfp.com. And the coupon code to use when checking out is RADICALSA. That's R-A-D-I-C-A-L-S-A. That's R-A-D-I-C-A-L-S-A in all caps. Offer expires March 31st, 2019. LOTFP creator Jim Raggi wrote an interesting and humorous anecdote about the time when Spiral Architect journeyed across the ocean to bless us with their tech metal in November 2001, which we are going to read right now. Back in November 2001, when Spiral Architect played Prague Power in Atlanta, Asgir Mickelson took a piss at my place. I refused to flush my toilet for a week because my apartment was so much cooler with his urine in it. Which means either he didn't flush, or he did flush, and I was just kind of accumulating my own excrement in the bowl there for no reason. Or I remember my reaction to the most talented person to ever relieve himself in my apartment all wrong, and I have for no reason at all been obsessing about Mickelson's urine for 18 years whenever Spiral Architect or Borknagar comes up. But he ate a burger with a knife and a fork when our group went to eat at the Vortex, so I wouldn't put anything past that man. Or was that the other guy from the band that I can't remember which one it was? Oivind, I think. Doing the knife and fork thing, I mean. Because it was for sure Asgir that took the leak. And suddenly all this name dropping doesn't seem like it'll help very much with promotion. So why don't we get on with the podcast and see if Jeff and Hunter can top that classy and relevant Spiral Architect story. By LOTFP. So thanks, Jim. That was a verbatim reading of uh, something he wrote to us with this promotion. Um, I can't really top that story. I've, I've only ever interviewed or emailed a few of these guys and nothing of great substance or hilarity ensued. So uh, I got nothing. I certainly don't have eating a hamburger with a knife and a fork or, uh, you know, keeping urine in my bowl. I don't have nothing. As a gear, uh, that show signed my uh, my copy of Skeptics Universe without ever making eye contact with me. <laughs> right. That's pretty good. Well, you know, a big rock star like that he signs he signs <laughs> yeah, man. millions and millions of things per year. So yes, uh, you can't you just can't make eye contact with all the fans. Um, they seem pretty tired when I met them. Yeah, I, mean, who knows? I guess from the travel and everything. And did you, did know, you meet them after the show? Before the show? Yeah, they, they were doing a, a I guess a sort of impromptu signing after the show. I see. Well, they, they seem, yeah, a little a little exhausted. You're a drummer. You'd be drained if you played that whole thing. Oh, geez. Who wouldn't be? Let's talk about Asgir a little bit. Vinny, Vinny Kaliuta. <laughs> Vinny, yeah, Vinny Kaliuta. <laughs> Don't mention Vinny if we're talking about other drummers because all those other drummers will pale. Let's talk about Asgir, though. Uh, I know that, you know, obviously you're a drummer. You don't love Asgir. You don't think he's perfect in, in terms of his drumming. Is that right? I think that this is his best drumming performance. To me, like, Azagir really sort of flourishes in the busy technical realm. And, like, on some of the later Borknagar stuff that he plays on, and also in Venersword, when he loosens up, he always seems a little stiff to me. 
Oh, interesting. Okay. You know, that's kind of the polar opposite of what I've heard about Carl Palmer. A lot of people think Carl Palmer of ELP is like a fantastic drummer when he's like showing and and really kind of just doing the really complicated stuff. But when he tries to hold down a kind of basic 4-4 beat, he's got no time. So it's kind of like he's loose, right? But both guys sort of perform best when, you know, they have to like jump the highest hurdle, I guess. And I think, and I don't, I mean, obviously, I think Azagir's a great drummer because he was able to play this stuff. Like, this, I mean, this is this is the most elite metal ever, right? Sure. But, but I think a lot of guys, a lot of drummers, and I see it more and more now, especially with the onset of, like, actually, I was going to say the onset of post-necrophagist um, tech death, and I forgot that their first album was called Onset of Future Faction. <laughs> right, right. Ha-ha. Uh-huh. That's the second time I've done that today. My, my boss at work was less amused than you were. <laughs> um, but but I, I feel like a lot of young drummers um, start out wanting to play the most complex music, the fastest music, and they really kind of neglect the fundamental role of the drummer, which is timekeeping. Uh, okay, yeah. Well, okay, there you go. And there's the Carl Palmer reference. And I can see Carl Palmer just yeah. being like, well, you know, to hell with this. Like, I just <laughs> shred, man. Totally. And, and Asgir, the same thing. So you think yeah. he's just kind of like too tightly wound and just too, what, clinical in other, yeah, probably, in other yeah, realms? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah I mean, okay. yeah, there's not a lot of like stacks, muscle shoals in, in that drumming DNA. Understood. A little stiff. Okay, well, let's listen to two passages from the song that comes next on the album. It's called Insect. And... You know, it's it's tough to really make this call, but I'm going to say it. I, I think this is one of the most head-spinning pieces on this entire album. I think it's one of the most head-spinning pieces in, like, the metal canon. Thank you. 
Insect. Uh, that's so great for so many reasons. I think that my impression, just listening now, is the textural variety. I mean, it's fusiony in so many places. It's like the most complicated or spacey Alan Holdsworth, maybe, too. Just in terms of like the sounds they're getting from the guitars, the textures, some of that kind of either clean or acoustic sounding uh, Mm -hmm. super fast guitar that comes in there. Um, The really heavy dark thing that is probably as heavy as this album gets. Um, Yeah, what a great way to end that song. Yeah, it's really just this looming thing and, you know, kind of points toward the heavier end of the Norwegian scene. And just just high, high level invention and ability. Oh, the highest level of ability. I mean, man, that that first section, like when it opens, it's almost indecipherable. Yeah. Like you would need a score to figure out what's like how the guitars and the drums and the bass are all interacting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. the speed at which they play is pretty incredible. Not not the the rhythmic pace, but just the the, the number of notes, the nimbleness, and how fast yeah. they're flying around their frets. And nimbleness uh, is the perfect word. And okay, and again, the the how far out the bass is in the mix, man. I love that as a huge fan of the instrument. I you know bass guitar. Sometimes I think it's my favorite instrument in the rock setup, and um, I just love listening to Norberg on this. I just I, I can't get enough. Yeah, I know he's a total master. Yeah. Really he cool. really, I mean, he's kind of like, he's kind of the linchpin in a lot of that song. Like, as, as busy as his playing is, like, he's sort of, you know, the, the eye of the storm. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yep. What, what would you say to critics of this band and this kind of metal? You know, it's often accused of feeling cold and it's, you know, oh, it's overly technical or it's wanky. I mean, isn't that like calling, like criticizing Sabbath? because they're just too heavy or TNT because they're too <laughs> melodic. Right. It's supposed to be. So if you don't like it, that's one thing. That's fine. But, but the people that say like this stuff, this kind of stuff is so cold and it's so like alien and robotic. Well, it's oh, kind of supposed to be. It's atmosphere emanates from those very qualities. Exactly. You know, like it, it, it takes on an emotion all its own. You know, it's like, yeah, to the, you know, the naked ear. Sure. It is cold and it is clinical, but like that's the point. That's what it's supposed to be. Yeah. I think once you peel beyond that, and if you can get beyond your bigotry, that you would understand that there is so much depth beyond the appearance of you know coldness and you know antiseptic precision. For sure, I think this album is the one I'd give people to try to have them rethink if they were open to it versus. Here we go, Control and Resistance, which I'm not sure that's ever going to make somebody love it who's on the other side of the fence, right? It's Probably just, not, it no. is just too cold. It is just too clinical. Um, yes. I think this one has, if not a little more heart, they're just a little more gut. And Yeah, um, no, a more human element. And I yeah, think, yeah. Uh, but, you know, look, <laughs> I'm almost sounding like I'm, I'm disliking Control and Resistance. I don't, think, I don't think I could like that album more than I do. I think it's impossible. Um, right. But, but it's, it, it's a more forbidding listen than a skeptic universe. For sure, for sure. Fair to say we wouldn't have Spiral Architect without Watchtower, though, so much, no. much, much due respect. Uh, and having said all that about, you know, clinicism and, and coldness, Cloud Constructor, the next song, is probably the most accessible or atmospheric or, dare I say, toned down of all the songs on the album. I mean, it's still got everything we want and everything we expect from them on this album, but... Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? 
I think Matt Johnson probably wrote the first piece in the U.S. on this band in Maniacs. Yep. And um, and he kind of set Insect and Cloud Constructor up in a in a binary relationship. Mm. Like here's like the pinnacle of madness, and then here's this really really emotional, beautiful dimension to this band. And you you and I earlier like you know before we before we taped like we're talk I guess talking about Oivin's vocal performance in the song, and I mean it's just. It's a thing of real majesty. Yeah, don't forget that this band is highly influenced by Fate's Warning and Psychotic Waltz. And we hear that there. And we hear that emotion. Don't tell me tech is emotionless because there you exactly. have it. No, no, no. The tech metal and, and emotion can interface and, and, and do it quite well. Yeah, I mean, that, that was as emotional as the most like moving Psychotic Waltz moments. Yep. And then you get all that, that those like arcing um, guitar lines that, you know, that's one of the great things about Psychotic Waltz, too, beyond Buddy Lack, is like the super imaginative guitar work. Yeah, that spiraling very... kind of, um, boy, I, I've always, not because we're talking about Spiral Architect, but Psychotic Waltz's leads are always that kind of towering, spiraling, sure. sort of, I don't know, I always... It's a very visual approach to the instrument. Yeah. It, like, it brings the imagination into a, a certain focus. And it's I always think. soaring. It always has something to do with the sky for me. It's always soaring. Yeah. It's way up high. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, I totally agree. Yes, I understand it. Moving on, uh, another song that we couldn't pick only one snippet from. This is Conjuring Collapse, and uh, we picked two passages from this.
Collapse into intensity indeed. Collapse into instrument envy. Jeez. Dude, in a per- can you imagine, like in a perfect world like a record where Lars Norberg and Marcel Jacob just like trade off? Ooh, wow. <laughs> that would be great. Uh, unfortunately, that'll never happen. Marcel is it with won't. us. Yeah. Listening to that, it kind of reminds me, I think almost every time I've ever listened to this album, this is never one I follow up with something else. It's always like, I just, yeah, it yeah, just, let's just go for a walk or something. Yeah. Just kind of <laughs> in, enjoy the silence a little bit, get all right. those notes kind of just out of my head for a while. Cause what, it's just exhausting. Yeah, you it know? is. I mean, it, it, in a way it's, that's like the most intense death metal or black metal or thrash in terms of um, what it puts you through. And then what you're left feeling after the album. And we're not done yet because they, uh, oh, we're not done. They gave us two more songs on this album. And, um, and we've got a remarkable passage to play you in this next song because it is one of the only moments of respite that you will get on the entire record. <laughs> and I, for me, like one of the most emotionally impactful moments on this album too. Oyvind is channeling some serious John Arch in that one. Serious. I mean, but I love that that song and particularly that passage gives him a, a venue to do that. Yep. Um, and also, too, like, I think it highlights how 
awesome the guitar tone is on this record. Yeah, when it just breaks out, that's it, all you hear for a bit. And um, yeah, because yeah, I mean the ear is like drawn in so many different directions because of the you know the hysteria of the music itself. But like when you really get to hear that guitar by itself, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, and another and, uh, tip of the cap to the production because it just it's a great tone, really nice tone. I have one sort of anecdote to, to I don't think I've ever told you this. It's a moment of auditory folly on my part. Mm. So the and and I, anybody that knows this record, I guess will know the opening passage of this song. But if if you don't know this record, go back and listen to it. Maybe what I'm about to tell you will make sense. It doesn't really make sense, um, but I thought that this is what I heard the whole time. So the beginning lyrics of this song are words, all words worth nothing with you, mistaken meaning. And for years, I thought it said words, all words worth nothing with you, Mr. Gambini. <laughs> and I'm like, who the hell is Mr. Gambini? And why are they talking about it? I'm the, like, it sounds like a Sopranos character. Right. And I'm like, hey, well, Mr. Gambini over there. Hey, uh, yeah. Hey, you give me the well, sausage pizza and a coffee, you know what I'm saying? You, you think you're adaptable? You're not adaptable. <laughs> hey, tech. You know I'm tech. I know some tech. I knew Alan Techio once, you know. Um, yeah, I know Alan Techio. But uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate when that happens because then it gets stuck in your head, and even though you know it's wrong, it, you always hear it. I mean, I've, I've done yeah, stuff like that too. Yeah. That's funny. Anywho. Where did they go after this? I mean, these obviously we mentioned that they never really got back together and they didn't have a big breakup. It just they dissolved. They scattered. Yeah. It just they just went other ways. And uh, a lot of these guys ended up playing in other bands. I mean, Asgir went into Borknagar, of course. I know I went into Satyricon. A couple guys went into Satyricon. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, was it Lars? Lars was in Satyricon as a live yeah. member. And so was Steiner. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, and then um, Oivind um, had a, a really great cameo on Mayhem's Grand Declaration of War. Yeah, he sings in uh, complete completion of science and agony, and that's that's a highlight of that album. His, oh, absolutely, his part yeah. it's it's really great that you know Maniac turned that over to him, and and he just capably delivered. It was amazing. Also, he was a, a live member of Arcturus for a time when they were between singers. Yep. Yep. Uh, that's pretty cool. I would have liked to hear. Yeah, him. we should a record with him. Would that would have been, been that would have been that would have been cool. Yeah, and Asgir was with with Eson a little bit. Uh, Vintersword. Vintersword. Yeah, I mean, it just it goes on and on, and like uh, they really got pulled into that whole Norwegian black metal or post black metal world, and we're okay with that. Norway is is nothing. The Norwegian metal scene is nothing if not incestuous. We've said it before. We'll say it again. Yeah. Yep. There you go, and we arrive at Fountainhead. They're one of their oldest songs, and I think a highlight of the record. But then again, this is a record where just about everything's a highlight. It's hard to say. Yeah. There's certainly no low points. It's just consistently awesome. This is Fountainhead.
that multi-track cascading vocal part there yes and i also we haven't mentioned them well we've mentioned cynic but the other florida tech metal gods i mean I, you know there's there's affinity there to like the most complicated death and atheist stuff for sure yeah well earlier you mentioned holesworth and fusion and i think you get a ton of that in that song yeah, yeah. But they really kind of open up and just let things flow yeah that's nah, beautiful it's, it's it's beautiful stuff I don't, I'm not sure we could like slather any more hyperbole on this than we already have. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, they uh, had the great taste to add a cover song to the Japanese edition of this album. Uh, as a lot of people know, you know, the Japanese for a long time were like getting bonus tracks. And, um, you know, they became kind of these sought after additions and uh, the Spiral Architect album came out with a red cover instead of the normal blue. Great album cover, by the way. Oh, yeah. Kind of exemplifies what you're listening to. It kind of looks how it sounds in a, in a way. But this thing had a red cover and it had a cover of Fate's Warnings Prelude to Ruin. And I'm not sure. I, I researched it a little bit. Couldn't find anything. I suppose I could have asked Ken. I didn't. I don't think this is from the same sessions. It just doesn't sound like it. Do you know anything about it? It does. It, I don't. But it, it's it's absolutely not from the same session. Yeah, you can just tell from the the sound of it. Yeah, um, it's a great version too. And I think you and I are kind of on the same page. Where sometimes if, if covers are are too close to the original, it just there's no point. I think this one is true to the original, but I think they infuse their own thing in it. And I think it just makes a whole lot of sense that they would choose, you know, kind of the most complicated era of Fate's Warning, one of them anyway, um, when Fate started to really get complex and they chose this song, which is possibly the most complex on the amazing, amazing Awaken the Guardian album. We're going to listen to it now, but one thing that I like about it that we're not going to hear is it opens with this acoustic passage that isn't part of Prelude to Ruin. It's not a Fate's Warning piece, uh, but it sounds like it completely could have been written by Jim Mateos. Oh, totally. You know, well, that's and, the great thing is that, like, 
you know, it sounds like it should have been a part of the piece or it could have been a part of the piece. I, I think that's an interesting choice. And I, I don't know why they did it. I've never read any explanation, but I suppose it's just homage to Fates Warning. Like, hey, look at this Acoustic Passions. It sounds just like something Fates would have done in the mid to late 80s. And they open with that and then they get into the song. We're going to listen to uh, a pretty long passage from it and um, kind of show you the madness that they sort of like <laughs> put into it. <laughs> this is Prelude to Ruin.
They learned well from the masters. Yes, they did. Thanks for listening to Radical Research, episode 27. Please contact us. We love to know what you think, and uh, we're always encouraged and continually encouraged by people that reach out to us from all over the world and have something to say about you know, a particular part of an episode or just our basic mission. And um, a lot of people are, are on board with us. A lot of people have great suggestions or questions or constructive bits of criticism. It's, it's great. Radicalresearchpodcast at gmail.com. That's also our PayPal ID. If you want to give us a donation, we really would appreciate that. And uh, we might be doing another batch of t-shirts sometime. So uh, if you've bought one of those, thank you, thank you, thank you. And please give us a review on iTunes. That really helps a lot. It also helps people find the show. Tune in two weeks from now to our 28th episode, which will be a feature on math rock. Um, It will not be comprehensive overview of the genre. Uh, Rather, it's going to be Jeff and Hunter's take on math rock, a personal journey within the subgenre that is math rock. Until then, we bid you a good evening from our home to yours. Adieu. What were you gonna What were you gonna say when we were listening? It was off color. I want to hear it. I, I, I may not record I, I said, it, but go ahead. I said I had buddy lackey jizz all over myself. No. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. That if you want to, but <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to sully sully our show <laughs> <laughs> with buddy lackey jizz. Yeah, that's Devin Graves jizz. That's <laughs> 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 no, buddy lackey jizz. All right, all right. <laughs>